What a great psalm. Psalm 47 uh, is a very special psalm uh, in, in the sense that it plays a, a particularly uh, unique role in the life of the Jewish people. Uh, this is a psalm that is associated and connected to the beginning of the Jewish New Year. Now, it's not our Jewish New Year, right? Uh, it's just a regular New Year for us. But nonetheless, the attitude is the same. The attitude of, of refocusing, resetting our, our minds, uh, redirecting our hearts as we come into a new year. Uh, normally, as we kind of uh, make our way through the, the Christmas season. We have some kind of Christmas sermons that we work through, and uh, as we come to uh, the new year, sometimes, you know, it's it's a, a little bit of like uh, uh, kind of a wild card spot, or sometimes it will be something in association with uh, the new year, or, you know, we might talk about uh, how how to steward over yourself in kind of the, in the coming weeks and, and, and in your plans. But, but this year, I thought that we would uh, kind of reflect in the same way that the Jewish people would reflect at their New Year. Uh, you know, you may have friends or family who celebrate uh, Rosh Hashanah, which is, you know, that's kind of what the, um, the Jewish New Year is. And at that, they have these feasts and celebrations. Uh, but a, a lot of um, Jewish communities, uh, it's, a, it's a more kind of modern element um, in the in the sense that Israel has a very long history of the modern uh, element uh, or a, a modern feature here where they would uh, often gather together and they would recite this uh, psalm seven times. And, and uh, at, at the climax of that, it would kind of end in the blowing of uh, this kind of like a ram horn kind of uh, instrument called the shofar. And, and this would kind of be the... the instituting of a new year, this, this recognition of that something new is beginning. And, and so that is something that kind of uh, would, would take place in, in more recent times. But this goes back even further. You, you find uh, some of the, the early Jewish writings, you, you uh, see this captured in, in various Jewish sects where they would um, read this psalm together or sing it in various ways. Uh, and so I thought as as uh, we enter into our new year, we would reflect upon it with the same attitude. Uh, because uh, the, the time of when the year begins is, you know, not so relevant. We're on a different uh, calendar. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the way that we approach it uh, should be with this open heart to see how the Lord would shape us and what it would call us to uh, in this new year. And so as we look at this psalm, uh, of course, in all of the, uh, the categories of psalms that could exist, this psalm is a, a royal psalm. It is attributed to the sons of Korah. Um, you, you'll see kind of there if you have it in your uh, little subheading there. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And this is a psalm that speaks of uh, this great ascent of the king of kings to his throne. And so, uh, as we consider it, you'll see that this is a psalm uh, that, that encourages, that calls God's people to uh, loudly praise the king, praise God together over all the earth. And so, it opens with these words. It's a very simple and straightforward uh, psalm, but it opens with these words, clap your hands, all peoples. 
Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. So right off the bat, you kind of get these, these two verses that are coming together. And what it's, what it's opening up for is it's setting the scene uh, of this, this grand, um, uh, in a sense, um, like king's coronation. Like the king is coming in and we are, we are recognizing his rule. And, and, and this is what is happening here when it says, clap your hands, uh, all, all people, shout to God with long, loud songs of joy. Uh, this is uh, descriptive of, of several places in the scriptures, but I want to call your attention to one particular uh, event in 2 Kings chapter 11. There is this moment where uh, Joash is uh, being, uh, being uh, made king, and it says, Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony, and they proclaimed him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. Now, I, I don't know how they were clapping their hands. This probably wasn't like a round of applause sort of situation. There's probably some sort of rhythmic thing happening here with like shouts of praise and, you know, kind of like a, when, when you're wanting to like recognize like something great, uh, you're not just like cheering in like a random way, but like you're in unison acting as one body to put forth one message. Perhaps you've been to a sporting event where they kind of have like the various claps that you're kind of used to uh, settling into. This is, I imagine, something that uh, was similar here. And it's calling everybody to act as one, to recognize one thing. It's not just a, a random, like, if you appreciate it, clap, but rather this is a unifying moment, a unifying event. And here we find that the psalmist encourages, he calls all people to bring this uh, recognition to this king. Now, it's not just the king over the people of Israel, but this is even broader. Look at how he starts there. Clap your hands, all people. Now, this is the, 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 the broader words, everybody, right? You'll see as we move through that this expands uh, to a, a much wider audience. There, there isn't just the, the exclusivity of, of the Jewish people only. This is recognizing God's rule and reign over everyone. So as uh, the Jewish people would begin the new year, they're coming and saying, we are starting our new year and recognizing again that God is the king and that he rules and reigns over all people and that he is worthy of us recognizing his reign. We clap our, our hands. We shout with joy. We bring loud songs to him. All the people are called to this. The vision that's put forth throughout this song is a global vision. And this is firmly anchored, you will see this as we move through the text, but this is firmly anchored in the promise that God made to Abraham, right? That your descendants would be greater than the sands of the, uh, of the sea. It would be innumerable, and the stars of the sky would just be like this crazy amount of people. That would be a great blessing that he would, he would know and want to enjoy. Now, think about this. When God made Abraham that promise, there were not a Jewish people. This begins with Abraham. Abraham is from Ur of the Chaldees. He's like some random guy. So this isn't unique only to Jewish people. But he says, there's going to be a way, Abraham, that more people are going to know. More people are going to come into my family. 
So before this is even instituted with Abraham, Abraham has this promise that the king of all the earth is entering into a relationship with him. Verse 2, the psalmist goes on to write, For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Again, you've got language here that's remarking upon his rule and reign as a great king over all the earth, but he also starts off here uh, being called uh, the Most High. Now, this is a, a bit of a different um, phrasing here. This is uh, this, this term here is this word called Elion, and it really remarks about God's, when he says it, it's Most High, it's not speaking of it as the, uh, it's speaking at it kind of simultaneously as like he is, in a sense, literally the Most High, like he's higher than everybody else in like a, in like a, nobody could be exalted, like, in a, I hesitate to say physically, but like, yes, um, that nobody can outdo him in that sense. But also, because he is that, it implies that he has a supremacy overall, that he is the ruling king. He reigns over, over all the earth. And so uh, this recognizes that, and he pairs it up with that last phrase there. He is a great king over all the earth. So the high king, the one who will be made most high, is, of course, over all the earth in, in a, uh, I guess, you know, like I said, the analogy breaks down a little bit, but in a literal and figurative sense, uh, he is this reigning king. But it's not just this statement that is made. He gives us now, uh, in verses 3 and 4, he gives us uh, two reasons that he's calling Israel to recognize. He's calling all God's people to recognize about uh, these evidences of what God has done, about why he is great, why he is this wonderful king. So, first, in verse 3, he subdued people under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. So, first, the evidence for what God has done for Israel is located first in verse 3 in his power. In his rule, he has conquered enemies. He has protected his people. The people who are uh, reading this psalm, who are hearing this psalm, are called out to respond to God, to praise him as a great king because he provides for his people by subduing their enemies, by bringing protection to them, by uh, seeing these nations that would oppose them, that would cause uh, cause them harm, and he brings protection to them. So one of the, the primary works here that Israel is recognizing God for is his protection, his care, his concern for his people, both from uh, foreign enemies, uh, from enemies who would come against them. But then he, he, he frames this out, he protects them, uh, from entering into poverty. He protects them from being taken advantage of. Right? He says, he has chosen our heritage for us. He's given us an inheritance. Now, this word here, uh, our, our heritage, is often used to kind of refer to the promised land. You, you kind of find this 
at other places. But here, when it's used, it, it's, it's brought in a little bit more broadly. That, that he has, has given this uh, promise to us, this promised land to us. He's expanded this out even more broadly because he has uh, brought that protection. He's brought provision, safety, and security. He has brought all these things to us. And it's a recognition in saying both of these things that, uh, that he ultimately is the ruling king. All of this is focused upon uh, recognizing what he has accomplished. He himself reigns over all the earth. But remember, he reigns not just over Israel, over all the nations, over all the people. He chose a heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Now, the heritage is also uh, here for the people of Israel. They are thinking of, of course, themselves, that God is choosing them as a heritage, that he is uh, making them a part of his family. He has set his love upon them. Of course, you have this uh, recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord had set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Right. So uh, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, you find that God gives them insight. Like, hey, Israel, like, here's, here's what's going on. It's not because you were anything special. It's not because you guys were the best, because you had like the most talented people. It's not because you had the most people. He says there that, that you were the least. You had, you had the least to offer me. You had the fewest. You guys were just this little, little tiny bunch of people. There's nothing for me to brag about with you guys. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But he says here, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he tells him here, you guys didn't do anything to deserve this. You guys don't have anything to offer. It's not because you guys were great. It's not because you guys had all these talents and skills and abilities. It's not, that's not the reason why God has, has um, chosen to love you, why he chose you. He chose to love you because he chose to love you. It's God's decision. You didn't have anything to offer him. It's purely from his goodness. He loves you despite your, well, what you have to offer. What you have to offer is not good enough. It's not appealing enough. All the things that Israel could have to offer fall short. And so it is the same for all who God invites into his family. That we have nothing to offer that is appealing. But rather, we are invited in because he loves us. Because he wants to know us. Paul, uh, Paul outlines this for us in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right. So he says there, it's, it's me being crucified with Christ and, and what I was, what I thought I had to offer, it's not there anymore. It's not useful to God. It's not helpful to him. The, it is no longer I who live. 
but Christ who lives in me. And he goes on and he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So he, he makes that statement there. He's not trusting in his own works. He's not trusting in the things that he has done or that he has accomplished. If you recall in that passage, he gives this big list of all of his qualifications. And he's basically like, I was like the best that there ever was. And like, it didn't matter. Like, none of that is useful. In fact, it also, it, before the God, it is, uh, it, it's just filthy. It looks awful, is what he, what he says there. But he says, I've put that off. And now the, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He trusts in Christ and in Christ's work. He goes on, he says, uh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul understands uh, the implications of what is being said in this psalm. Paul recognizes that he is loved because God has loved him. And so here we find uh, in this psalm, as the people gather on the new year, they remind themselves, he subdued the people under us, the nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. It's that God loves people. That God has given himself, just as Paul said, the Son of God loved him and gave himself for him. And then we see uh, a great climax in verse 5. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. So the truth of the exalted God is again reiterated there as a closing statement. God has gone up with a shout. He's done these great things. He's accomplished these great works. He has set his love upon us. And here in verse 5, you, you have this picture of God uh, ascending to his throne. He has gone up as the people clap their hands, as they, uh, as they shout and sing with songs of joy, and they, they shout at the top of their lungs super loud with all that they are. He ascends. He makes his way up. Now, as we come to verse 6, what the psalmist does is he basically puts it on repeat. He basically says, like, we're going to do this again. Uh, I'm just going to say it a little bit of a different way. But he gives us some other clues in here so as to see God's intention, God's heart, that are incredible. First, we open again with that same, uh, same theme of praising the Lord, singing loud songs of joy. In verse 6, we read this, Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a song. So, this same sequence now begins again. There's this invitation to praise, this invitation for uh, his people to sing. And you have this um, brought forward by the repetition of this phrase, sing praises. And, and what's happening here is that you're kind of getting, um, you're, you're getting like direction in, in the sense of like what to do. But this is also 
you know, we, we kind of don't read it in the same way. We don't, we're not singing this, but they would be singing this. Uh, but when you do so, the sing, singing praises there, the way that it's repeated there, uh, for us, we kind of see that very in a very straightforward way. But when it repeats in this way, that kind of told ancient readers, when you see similar phrases next to each other, like that means like, like increase or get louder, uh, you know, or, or it's basically about dynamics. Like how intense should you be at this moment? If you've got like a lot of those together, it's like you should be really, really intense right here. So as you're singing praises, you're supposed to be like saying, sing praises, sing praises, but you're, but you're also supposed to be like getting louder. It's supposed to be like getting like more raucous and like crazy as you get into this second section, right? Because kind of the way that it would go is that it would start to uh, crescendo, and then there would be like the big blowing of the shofar, shofar at the at the end of that, and you you know you're kind of building this momentum, this energy together here, and so you you have this this phrasing that's suggestive of the crowd shouting an acclamation, shouting these uh, words of exaltation to God, and then it finishes with with this really cool move in verse seven. Right, so he says, sing praises. He finishes this with a song. Sing praises with a song. Because you and I are like, okay, that's just a little bit weird. Because like we, we are singing praises with a song. We're like literally doing what it's supposed to be, says we're doing here. Uh, but this, this final word here is, um, it, it's, the, the psalm there, it's, it's used as a, as a type of song. It's a mascal. If, if you look um, at Psalm 45, uh, just a couple pages earlier, that's a, a psalm that is called out as a mascal. And, and, and this basically here is translated for us as a psalm, because if it said sing praises, you know, as a mascal, we'd be like, what the heck does that mean? We'd be confused. But as you dive into it more, um, you see that where that word comes from is it's connected to um, this idea of like the, the intersection of of like wisdom and skill. That's basically where, where you're at. So I kind of think about that as like this, like wisdom and skill is like basically like art, right? It's like, like you're like thinking about something and you know how to like technically do something and then you're like proficient and skillful. And so it's basically calling us to, to operate in a way to do this with like all all intention, all focus, all understanding, but like as like as like as best as you can do it with as as artfully and intentionally and like amazing as you can do it, like go for it. So he says there, sing praises to our God, verse six. Sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a song, or sing praises as artfully and amazing with intention and understanding and like, like let's just do it up. Like let's just get as crazy as possible with the fullness of who you are with all that you have. You get this great climax that happens. And then again, the scene steps back and you see the king, verse eight, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. So again, this 
scene that takes place, God's relation to the world, ruling over all the nations he's presented, not just over Israel, but over all the nations. He reigns over the nations, he sits on his holy throne, and then we finish in verse 9 with this really cool verse. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So we finish seeing that God is ruling over the nations. Verse 8, he reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. And the princes of the people, like these nations that are there, they all gather to him. The people, the princes, Israel, they all gather as one people. There's no longer uh, outsiders described here, but rather they're called the people of the God of Abraham, right? That's what you see here in verse 9. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. This is, is looking to the abundant and amazing fulfillment of that promise of Genesis chapter 12. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This continues on. Not just to the covenant people that is Israel, but beyond that, remember, as we said, this is a promise that's given to Abraham like before there was an Israel. That wasn't like even a thing yet. Then we find that the Jewish people continue with this. The sons of Korah seem to have this in mind as they write this song, as they gather on uh, the new year, as they reflect upon the text and they begin to say this. It seems as though they are looking to the future in hope and expectation when all the nations of the earth will finally recognize God as the true king. And looking to that day when all the nations of the earth will indeed be blessed. And of course, this is what Paul seems to remark upon and anticipate as well. As he expands upon uh, the covenant people, as he talks about including the Gentiles in uh, his letter to the Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. He writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Right? So he says it there. Sons of Abraham equal sons of faith. Verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So he, he's saying the same thing here. He's like, God is making a way for everybody to be in his family, to be included as they recognize him as the true king. And so what you find here, then, is that the people, the princes of the people, the foreign leaders, they now come together with the descendants of Abraham, and they all praise him, and they all recognize him as the king. And when this happens... When this happens, 
then those who have come to faith uh, in God through Jesus will discover, like, hey, we're all, we're all one family. We're all one group. And when that happens, all those different people, all those different nations, all those different groups, and all of those different armies, then the shields of the earth, we're told, belong to God. There will be no other power on earth apart from the power of God. And he would then be highly exalted. Again, there's that remark that he will uh, ascend to his throne. You find this uh, called out that God would indeed do this, that he planned this, that he made a way for all the nations of the earth to find safety and satisfaction in him as God in Christ gathers into one the scattered people of God. First, you find God giving uh, this prophecy through Isaiah. There's several places through Isaiah, but I'm just going to call your attention to one. If you if you wander through like the Isaiah 60s, like there's a bunch of stuff in there. But I'm going to call your attention just to one in Isaiah 19, verse 24. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, in Israel, my inheritance. Like, what? If you have read any of the scriptures up to this point, you're basically like, Egypt is the worst, Assyria, those are some bad dudes, like they are terrible, like no rules, just total pagans. But here, God's calling them out as like buddies with like each other and with Israel. They're like a part of his family because God is seeing something about what will happen when they recognize him as king. That the, the nation will expand. That God's kingdom will incorporate all who want to trust in him. He works through prophecies in the uh, book of Isaiah, but also through those who reject him. In John chapter 11, you have the high priest uh, at that time, Caiaphas, prophesying uh, uh, on behalf of God. Where uh, they're talking about killing Jesus and whether they should or not. And in John 11, verse 49, Caiaphas tells these guys, like, you guys don't know anything at all. He says, nor do you understand that it is better for you to, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So he goes and says, you guys are being logical. It doesn't make any sense. It's better if this one guy dies than if we all die. And then, and then John gives us this little side note, this parenthetical comment in verse 51. He said, he did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest this year, uh, the, the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Right? So he, he, says, he says here, God is doing this work through Christ. He's bringing us all in. And it's through that work that we see uh, the final coronation of the king. As he is raised up to the cross, that he is given the crown of thorns upon his head, that he conquers death and the grave, and then he is, uh, is resurrected and ascends uh, to be seated with the Father. Paul puts it this way, as he remarks upon the ascension uh, of Christ to rule and reign as the universal king in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. 
He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul writes that in such a way that it's like there could not be anything higher. Like he has done it, he is the king, he's ascended. If Psalm 47 is calling out the most high and being reigning over the earth, Paul's like he's covering like time frames. He's like, not not just this age, but the one to come. He's, he's looking at like all things. Like nobody is going to supersede the rule of King Jesus. Nobody is going to, to overcome him. He's seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. And he rules. He has power and authority and dominion above every name that is named. And so when the psalm ends, he is highly exalted. That's what he's getting at. That he will be highly exalted. He is highly exalted. Now as the people sing this song, as they as they gather on the new year, some some uh, some kind of Jewish sects would like would would uh, sing it every day in the days leading up to it. Some uh, they would kind of be chanting this and reciting this again and again. Um, but the idea there was important because what it does is it puts us in the right frame of mind to get started. We're, we're really good at this. Culture is really good at this, right? You could open up any browser window right now and probably going to be attacked with like a million things that are like, here's like four things you should do in the new year. Like here's like three great ways to start your year. And like try, everyone's trying to push and pedal something. They're trying to get you to, to participate in something. But the people of God knew that the only way to be successful was to reset your heart and your mind with a fresh commitment to God as king, to describing him as this uh, king that is over all the earth, that is setting the scene of his coronation and allowing us to say, once again, God, the new year begins, and once again, we recognize you as king. We recognize your rule over all. been a while since we've we've talked about this but we have a, a phrase we have something that we use within the church and it's connected to this mind right game tight you've got to have that mindset that focus of recognizing that Jesus is the king if you have that then it will follow that your actions your works the things that you participate in if your mind is renewed uh, you know kind of where we get that that phrase from is Romans chapter 12 let your your minds be renewed the transforming of your mind that you may do what is uh, good and perfect and acceptable uh, you know before, before God this is kind of this idea here that if your mind is not rightly focused on the gospel, on recognizing that Jesus is the king, you're just going to fail. You're going to go your own way. You're going to do your own thing. You might be successful at whatever you think you're setting out to do, 
without him, but you're ultimately going to end up floundering about and unsatisfied. And so as we come to the new year, as we come to this psalm, we are joining in with what the people of Israel would be joining in as they recited Psalm 47 and would say, okay, it's time to get our minds right. Jesus is the king. We look to his rule and reign, and we are ready to follow him into this new year as he leads us. And so we rejoice in that together. We hope that this will frame how we move forward as we begin uh, this new year together, as we encourage each other in the faith, as we build one another up, as we remind each other of our good and true King. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your kindness. We're grateful that you have given us a way to relate to you and that incorporating uh, people outside of um, Israel wasn't an afterthought. You weren't kind of like, oh, I guess like we're okay with them. But that you saw from the beginning that there were people that you wanted to love and know and serve. There were people that um, would need to be near to you. There were people that could find their hope and satisfaction in you. And we're thankful that you have made a way for that for us to draw near to you. We're thankful that you've made a way for us to come and find our, our rest in you. And so Lord, we pray that you would give us um, or call our attention to your kingly rule as we move into this new year, that we would recognize your claim, that you reign and rule over all the earth, and that you welcome all people to know you. And so, Lord, what a privilege it is to be your people, to walk with you, to know you. Would you be glorified in your church as we respond now?